Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we begin this new part of really what's been a longer series on which we entitled overall Life Matters. And we've talked about issues that are really kind of critical to our personal success and happiness in life, beginning with marriage, and then we talked about family marriage matters, dealing with parenting, and now last of all, talking about money. And we put the money one in this position, this place in the series, strategically. So, and I'll explain that more in a moment. But would you uh, stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to start reading in verse 6. Paul is speaking here and he writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. For people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses." Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that you would guide and direct us as we reflect upon this topic and the biblical passages that speak to it. Lord, in the end of the day, we want our lives to be founded upon your truth, not men's feelings or impressions or opinions, Lord. We want it to be your biblical truth. And so pray, we pray, God, that you would speak to us. Help us to know not only the right things in our head, but to understand your heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, we purposely scheduled this short series on money and the messages regarding it uh, for the time that would fall between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Why did we make that choice? Well, I just want to make sure that you had enough money to buy me something really nice this year. (laughs) No, seriously, because... This is one of the key periods of personal expenditure, a time when many people actually get themselves into serious financial problems. In fact, we find that our counseling rates and referrals for people who are struggling financially jump pretty precipitously by the close of January, the early part of February. And we kind of realize that the holiday season creates a tremendous emotional pressure to make the season extra special. I was watching a, I think it was a Walmart commercial, I I believe, and it it showed this little girl standing over a pumpkin and she's hitting it with her wand, trying to change it into a cart. And all of a sudden, bloom, it sprouted into this electric cart or chariot and she's sitting into it. And then underneath it, it just had the the caption, $396. And I thought to myself, is that all? (laughs) That's more than my first car cost. But it's, it's, interesting how that these things, you know, being a father, being a grandfather, I get the emotional connection in your mind, especially when you're a grandparent, it's 10 times worse because you just want to give them everything that you knew your kids didn't deserve. 
So you have all this, this, this sense that, oh, that just to see the light in their eyes and the excitement in their face on Christmas morning as they open their gifts. And even if that doesn't happen, there is kind of a, an illusion that this year it will happen. This year will be the one that's different. Christmas morning, after all, by our expectation culturally, is supposed to be a, an overwhelming moment of joy. That, and nothing says joy to most people than great gifts. And the more you get, the merrier. I'll never forget when my youngest son, Brian, was uh, uh, three years old. It was the first Christmas that he really recognized. And because he had, he was, there was eight years between him and his younger, the next youngest son, he was really the baby of the family, the center of Christmas excitement. And the tree was almost invisible, buried under this pile of presents, most of which were for him. Everybody went out and bought him gifts. And I remember as each of us opened our couple of gifts and were resting out, he was still going long into the afternoon. Finally, we moved his, his trove into his bedroom. And I was sitting on the couch, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, reading the, the paper. And he comes walking out and he looks at me and he says, Daddy? And I said, What? I want more. And I realized that we have just created a monster that we're going to have to feed for the rest of our lives. That somehow there just wasn't enough. And that's certain, certainly something we recognize about human appetite. But it's really easy to understand how the temptation to overspend almost as a way of showing how much we love or care for our loved ones uh, kind of guilts us into doing something that extends us beyond our means. And for many, that means to go deeply into debt, especially credit card debt. I was explaining to some of the guys between services, I said the reason why companies want you to get their credit cards is because studies have shown that if you buy something with a credit card, you're going to spend 30% more on average than if you actually had to count the cash out. And so part of the reason of moving you into their credit card and giving you all these discounts is even though they give you a discount, they know that your consumption, total consumption, is going to be significantly higher and lead to a greater bottom line. There is on top of that this added pressure, this aggressive pull, if you will, for most businesses because they know that half of their annual income Half of the money that they're going to make in the entire year is going to come between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so there is a huge amount of pressure, and there are all the great sales and offerings, and they will do everything and anything they can to draw you into the stores or to get you to shop online to induce you to spend as if there is no tomorrow. I sometimes think that these apocalyptic shows on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel are time to convince us that we don't have to worry about next year. <laughs> I don't know, just guessing. The conspiracy could be deep. But unfortunately, the chances are better or not that there will be a tomorrow. And so as a result, the bills are going to arrive. And when they come, we discover oftentimes that we overdid it. We're not really keeping track. We're not even operating within a budget and saying this is what we can spend. We're just giving in to those impulses. 
And before long, the outflow is greater than our inflow. And this creates crisis. You know, the number one cause of arguments in marriage is money. The number one cause for arguments in marriage is money issues. And as a consequence, many marriages begin going downhill because there wasn't a plan for how we're going to spend. And we'll talk about that next time about what it means to actually have a budget in your life. But there's also another compelling reason, I think, for speaking about money issues. And that's because it is one of the most common topics found in the Bible. In fact, financial guru Peter Grandich, Grandich, in his book, uh, Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, which he in fact was, he basically spends his time now speaking to Christians about financial management, in particular helping wealthy athletes who are Christians to manage their money because one of the things we find with athletes is they make millions and end up broke at the end of their careers. But he said money and possessions are the second most referenced topic in the Bible. Money is mentioned more than 800 times. The writers of the Bible anticipated the problems we would have with money and possessions. There are more than 2,000 references to money and possessions in the Bible. And this is even true of Jesus' teaching. Two-thirds of Jesus' parables speak about money and material things and how we manage them. That one out of every six verses in the Bible talks about money. So that when Solomon makes this statement, Ecclesiastes, that money is the answer of all things, he wasn't implying that if you have money, you have no problems. What he was saying is no matter how you journey through life, at some point, the nexus point for everything is going to be around money. That really it is the medium around which the world revolves It is the current, if you will, that most of life flows, which is actually where we get our word currency, taken from the word current, because it is the flow of human civilization and culture that goes along with the issue of money. So that Jesus, who said more about money than he did about heaven and hell, is basically making a point just by his emphasis. And I would say to you, if you are sincere about being a disciple or a follower of Jesus, at some point, at some time, you're going to have to wrestle with the issue of money in your life. And I I think that's important to emphasize because people oftentimes think that it's unspiritual, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But you see, I also want to clarify that I'm not talking about giving here. Because as soon as you start talking about money, people automatically go, okay, here's going to come the pitch. They're going to ask for money. No, we're not asking for giving. We're not, we're not even talking about that. What Jesus talked most about was not giving. Oh, he talked about it. It's part of the issue, but it wasn't the central issue. What he talked about was managing money. And I'm pretty comfortable with that because the bulk of what I have seen over the years and learned about money is that those who have managed their money tend to be more generous givers. And there are many people because they haven't managed their money, giving isn't really a feasible option because they don't have it. 
And so when we talk about this, what we want to emphasize more than anything else is the making of money and the managing of the money that we make. And believe it or not, you need to make money in order to manage money. And you need to manage what you make, not what you want to make or think you should make. So relax a bit. I'm not going to guilt you into giving more or, as the saying says, to get you to give till it hurts. Because I really think that if giving hurts, something's really wrong. If giving to God is a hurtful thing, then something's wrong. Because giving is intended by God to be a blessing and a joyous experience in my life. In fact, one of the things that Jesus said, according to Acts 20, is that the Lord Jesus said himself, Paul writes, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the ability to give to somebody is a blessing. Now, as many of you experienced yesterday, going out and distributing these gift boxes for Thanksgiving dinners, you undoubtedly have stories of being blessed. You felt, you felt better after you had done it than you felt about when you first got up in the morning and thought about doing it. There's a blessing that comes naturally in joyously giving to God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul, 9, 7, Paul said, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So that if we give because we feel this pressure to give, then there's something wrong. If it's painful and our hand shakes as we write the check or fill in the box, something's wrong. And you need to face that reality. Now, I may be scaring money out of the basket this morning, I'm, and may, but that's okay because it, if it's being given with a wrong understanding, then we're really not doing anybody a favor. Giving should be something that we expend with gratitude and with thankfulness and joyfulness. It's our opportunity to respond for God. And if it isn't that way in your life, then something is wrong in regards to your view of money and its place in your life, or maybe the management and mismanagement of it in your life. And that needs to be addressed. If you're going to be serious about being a follower of Jesus, at some point, you're going to run into that, that crossroad. You're going to have to step back and say, okay, I got to grab this tiger by the tail and begin to pray it into submission in my life. So what I want to do is really begin by talking about the, the misconceptions that people have and in doing so try to maybe bring some clarity as to what the Bible really says about money. And the very first place I want to start is where I think the most egregious error comes in and that's the idea that God needs your money. You know, we've seen the, the presentation sometimes in the television shows that says the work of God cannot go forward without your gifts coming in. And I think to myself, if it is a work of God, it doesn't need my gift. If it is truly a work of God, it will find its own support system and it will happen because God lets bushes burn in the wilderness after the bush has long been burned up. And part of the reason we know that God was speaking to Moses out of a burning bush was it because it kept burning. 
It's one of my favorite stories. Moses is, is cruising through the desert, watching over the sheep, and he sees a fire. I don't know how common burning bushes were in the wilderness, and probably not as common as, as singing bushes. But bottom line is he, there's this burning bush, and he, he looks at it, and it just keeps on burning, which tells me that long after the combustibles, the matter in it should have been consumed, all the carbon-based matter in it had been consumed, it still kept on burning, which was a clue to him, something is holding this fire beyond just sticks. And he walks up to it, and lo and behold, the bush talks to him. And this is become, becomes really a kind of a metaphor for me in terms of ministry. If we're doing something that God wants to do, then it's sustained regardless that God sustains what he's doing. And sometimes I tell my staff, let's find out if we have questions, if this is the Lord, let's just take our hands off of it and see if it still floats. Let's see if God sustains it, because if we're having to breathe time, money, and energy into something just to keep it going, it may be a work of our flesh and not a work of the Spirit. So when we begin to think about God's things, that the issue isn't that God needs me to give. As we'll see later on, I need to give. It's about my need, not God's need. In fact, in Colossians verses, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he said, Everything has been created through him and for him. He existed before everything else began, and he holds all the creation together. In other words, everything that's here right now that we see having what appears to be material consistency, including you, including my tongue and my lips that keep on wagging, all of this is held together by God. So at the end of human history as we know it, what does God do? He just disconnects everything and it's all gone. It all evaporates. He reconfigures it into a new heaven and a new earth. But when you have that kind of power... There is nothing that you need from the thing that you have created. In fact, in Psalm 50, David related, he said, For all the animals of the forest are mine, the Lord says. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Every bird in the mountains and all the animals of the field belong to me. If I were hungry, I would not mention it to you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. So again... We should never speak in terms of God having need, particularly need in material sense. There are things that God desires from you and from me, and that's mostly our love and attention. But the bottom line is He doesn't need that to survive, and He certainly doesn't need our material resources. But secondly, we often think that money matters are in the realm of the carnal, and therefore they are unspiritual. It's unspiritual to think or to talk about money. Well, once again, I would say that Jesus, as I previously mentioned, spoke about money far too many times for us to conclude that it's spirit, unspiritual. He uses it as a metaphor and a reference point and even as a measurement of people's faith in God. When he talks about the, 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 the tax collector and the, and the, or the Pharisee and, and the widow, and the Pharisee comes with his large gift and he deposits in the temple trumpets, which were these large trumpet-billed uh, boxes that they put their offerings 
things in as before they went into the temple. And the man drops it in and he has, does it with great acclaim and, and, and praise for himself and his generosity as people hear this large amount of money clunk into the box. And then he turns over and he sees this poor widow who has two mites. Now, two mites was enough money to buy you bread and shelter for one day. In other words, this was, and he says it was her entire living and she drops it in to the point that no one notices the gift and yet Jesus points out which one really gave the most. The whole point is that Jesus said there, there's something about the heart that be, lies behind what we do that reveals a spiritual dynamic in my life. And it comes an issue of my response or my obedience to what God wants in my life. So that it's linked directly in the fact that Jesus said in Luke 16, 11, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? If you can't be trusted with worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with the real riches? So step back for a moment and think about this. I mean, I want to view yourself through this lens for just a second. The material resources that you have don't really belong to you. They are those things that God has entrusted to you. Are you being trustworthy with what he has? Now, again, I'm not trying to create guilt here in where you sit down and look at the refrigerator and says, God, can I have permission to eat that apple? You know, we can get kind of carried away with that kind of idea. But the recognition that everything that I have is from God, it belongs to Him, and He gives it to me in the same way that I would give things to my children and take joy in seeing them enjoy the pleasure of those things, so God does with us. His generosity is often so much greater than you and I can even imagine. His gifting is so far beyond anything that you and I could even conceive of that the idea that God would be selfish or restrictive is kind of a an erroneous view of God. But at the same time, it's never losing sight of whose stuff it is, that it's his to give. As Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So how do you measure whether or not you begin to kind of claim ownership or become defined by the stuff you have? Well, the best way is when God allows it to be taken away. When suddenly it's taken out of your life and no longer present. You can no longer hang on to it or afford it or somebody steals it from you or it burns to the ground or whatever happens. Those tragedies happen in people's lives and our responses to those moments says more about where our faith is and our fellowship is than anything else. There is a distorted kind of Christianity, I believe, that always kind of believes that it's, it's always going to be bigger and better, that if I have enough faith, I can always make things bigger and better. And I'm not saying that there aren't bigger and better moments in your life, but they are not always bigger and better. Life is in the following Christ is not always upward mobility. Sometimes it's a downward mobility. And that's not always bad because a runner realizes and a swimmer realizes that the less drag he has on his body, the faster he or she is going to run and the better records they're going to set. Sometimes God says, I want to make you swift as the wind and therefore I'm going to strip away all those things that are hindering your progress. 
So that in the end of the day, we need to understand that God uses material things all the time in our lives to emphasize spiritual truths. That sometimes financial hardships are not simply because you made a bad decision or you didn't prepare adequately in advance. Sometimes financial difficulties are God's method of bringing a deeper experience of His presence into your life. Take, for example, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. What a grand, amazing moment. God, by ten miraculous signs, breaks the will as well as the back of Egypt and walks out of Egypt with the treasures of Egypt in their back pockets. God said, go to your Egyptian neighbors and say, give me your gold and your silver and your precious stones. And people are saying, yes, just take them and leave. God literally says, I've plundered Egypt for the 400 years they put you in bondage. They're now having to pay back for all of that. And so these became the things that later on they used to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. But as they're leaving and they're rejoicing and there's great victory, we've been set free, We're, the bondage is broken, and now we can live our lives in the freedom of worshiping our God and blah, 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 they suddenly come to the end of the road. They come to a place that God directs them to. And I, I, you know, we always get befuddled when God leads us to the wrong place, right? Where, Lord, there's the way into the land of Canaan. He says, no, I'm not taking you there. I'm taking you east. We're going to go out east. And there, everybody knew there's nothing out there except a large body of water called the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. And when they get to the Sea of Reeds, there's no way to get past the body of water. It's a large body of water. Where are we going to go? And people, you know, are getting really disgruntled because they think, you know, Moses, of all the things we took from Egypt, couldn't we have brought a, you know, a compass? And so everybody's having, the GPS wasn't connecting. All these problems are arising. And suddenly they feel a rumble under their feet and they turn around and they see a cloud of smoke coming over the horizon and it's the chariots of Pharaoh that are coming out not to deliver the mail that they forgot to pick up but to really deliver the nail that's going to nail their coffin and in that moment people are panicking and they're freaking out including Moses and God, Moses is turning to God and saying God why did you do this we could have died in Egypt why did we have to come out here to die and God simply says, shut up and stand still and observe the salvation of your God. And of course, we know the rest of the story because we saw the movie, right? But the whole point is, God does this amazing thing and here's an opening that wasn't there. You have to understand that God has done that over and over again in his people's lives. He's doing it in your life, maybe in some cases on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis where he brings you to this juncture where there is no answer, there's no solution, and you're on your face before God and you say, Lord, how are we going to survive? And suddenly we see the, the involvement of God moving in amazing and miraculous ways. I love the miracles of God. I hate the things that lead me to them. God healed me of my cancer, but I had to get cancer first. I had to go through the chemo. I, God helped me to get over this and over that, but I had to go through these situations that were so painful and difficult and gnarly. But in the end, God uses catastrophe and crisis to magnify himself in your life. 
And that becomes my whole point, to view the material struggles of our daily life as being unspiritual is to close our eyes to the fact that the God who made the material world and holds the material world together is working through the material world to awaken us to who He is and how powerful He is and how great He is. It's a wonderful comfort to know that God can fix any mess you're in. Whether it's the mess that you created or it's the mess that he allowed to overtake you, he has the power to fix it. The third misconception I come across often is that money itself is evil. And I think this is part due to misreading Paul's statement to Timothy when he said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, for the sake of clarity, uh, we need to remember, I'm sure you guys are aware of this, that, but money is an inanimate object that has no purpose or power beyond what we happen to assign to it and give to it. If you've ever traveled in a foreign country where you, they don't allow you to exchange U.S. currency, you suddenly realize that until this is traded into another kind of paper that they recognize, it's pretty useless to me. I mean, I remember the first time many years ago going to India and trying to pay for a, a bus ride with, with American currency. I gave a guy a dollar bill, which was several times the fare if he'd understood it, but he didn't know what it was. He had never seen one before, and he was not interested in taking it because his nose wasn't running and he didn't need to blow it. So I had to go and find an exchange so I could get rupees and suddenly he was all friendly and ready to go because I gave him something that he recognized. And I remember it was such an epiphany in that moment that all this is is a piece of paper that has a certain agreed value that we place upon it, but you take it someplace where they don't understand that, it isn't worth anything. And that's basically when we begin to personify money and, and give life to it, we're missing the greater point that it's just ultimately a piece of paper or in some cases a very fancy and technologically advanced piece of paper, but nonetheless, it's just paper. That it has no purpose or power other than the purpose and power we give to it. It's designed to be a tool. It's intended to be used just like a car or a book or a wrench or a computer or even the internet because ultimately how we view and use money is what makes it either good or evil. And there are two traps that Paul wants us to understand about money. Number one, he says the, it's the love of money is its own trap. The, the Greek word philagoreo here refers to uh, the love of silver in the most literal sense. It's the idea of having this fond affection for silver when you see it. It came to mean being greedy or to be grasping and coveting and clinging. We grasp and we cling to the things that we think are essential. We grasp and cling to the things that we are essential. Because you and I live in that kind of a, a climate geographically, I often think about if a forest fire were to pass through our neighborhood, as it does sometimes in this area, and I had only 15 minutes to retrieve from my home what is most important, what would I grab? What would I throw into the car and speed away with, and what would I leave to the ashes? 
It's a, it's a, you know, it's an interesting question, I think, sometimes to ask because it makes you sit back and say, okay, what are the things that really matter to me? You know, I used to say, well, I'd get all the photo albums and then God created the cloud. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> the simple reality is that we reveal the valuable things to us by the things that we choose to cling and grasp to. In a spiritual sense, if we allow anything to become more important to us than our relationship with Christ and His will, then we're caught up into a thing called idolatry. And that's what Paul's describing is that money becomes an idolatrous thing. It becomes the focus of worship. And we worship the thing that we think will get us what we want. In other words, if you've been in those parts of the world where people actually bow down to idols, and I have seen it, what you realize is that this idol, which is often made out of things like wood and stone with precious metals and stones attached to them, but you and I are looking at it and just going, really, this is crazy that people are actually worshiping and sacrificing to this, this object. But the belief is that if they do that, that the spirits that are represented by that object will bring blessing and protection upon their life. And so they, as a consequence, they are worshiping not just that piece of wood or stone or metal. They are worshiping the idea, the spiritual dimension beyond it. That's why the Lord said to Moses that he wouldn't have the people bowing down to idols because he says, I don't want you worshiping demons. There's a demonic dynamic. And what the demonic dynamics do is they try to convince us that stuff is more important than God himself. And so what happens is we begin to look at money and we say, money is the answer to all things. This is the key to my happiness. Now, I know that most of us have graduated far beyond that stumbling block, but, but let me just throw a few things out here to see if maybe there's one or two of you who still have this issue. Let me ask you this question. Your happiness meter, does it go up or down when you have no money? When you have a bill that comes in and you look at it and go, we ain't got the money to cover that, does that fill you with joy at the thought of the opportunity for God to display His miraculous power in your life? Does that become a moment of worship? Honey, you can't believe it. We just got a bill we didn't expect and we have no money to cover it. Praise Jesus. We got a miracle coming right now. Do you find that when you discover an extra $50 bill in your wallet that you didn't know there, that suddenly you feel like, wow, I got some extra money. I'm feeling pretty good. Well, I don't want to rain on that parade completely. Just want a light sprinkle. But it says something about where we see the source of our fulfillment and happiness. It's just, it's natural, and I, I don't want to be terribly judgmental because, I mean, I, I'm probably the only guy who doesn't go through those kind of struggles. Um, but you have to understand that that will take you someplace, and that can grow in your life to where suddenly your sense of the future, your sense of your fulfillment, your sense of your value as an individual is directly related or connected to the inflow and the outflow of resources. And it causes you to question God. 
It causes people sometimes to make compromises in their life where they will lie, cheat, and steal or do whatever they need in order to gain what they need. I find most fascinating listening to interviews of people like uh, Bernie Madoff who made off with you know, billions of dollars of other people's monies. And, and you know, he, he just almost jokingly talks about how easy it was because he says people are so greedy that they think that you can make them lots of money. They just throw their money at you. And then how offended and angry and disillusioned they are when they find out that you ripped them off and you spent their money and it's all gone. But it was really interesting because why did Bernie do it? Because he knew that having lots of money made him popular and famous and important and made him added to his stature in a culture which honors money more than anything else. In a culture that honors money. Now we may say we're, we're a sophisticated culture. We don't worship idols. Oh yes we do. <laughs> you know, James warned, he says, you know, the rich man comes in and you look at his apparent richness and you defer to him. You tell the poor guy, you go move over here, come here and sit in the best seat. Now in our church, the best seat apparently is not here in the front, it's way in the back. But nonetheless... <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep your distance, man. I mean, he's a spitter. <laughs> That's why they wear those shields in the front row. Anyway. But it's really important for us because he, he goes on to add, secondly, that the love of money becomes a trap. And what kind of a trap? He says it is a root of all kinds of evil. That that idolatrous mindset gets rooted into our hearts in very subtle ways. And think about this. When you plant a seed, you don't see it under the ground because it's, it's buried there. It's hidden. And then it germinates and it's growing. The root system is growing. And only after a period of time does it sprout to the surface and suddenly become visible. And it will produce its fruit. But that's the thing that we need to be sensitive to in our life. That I'm not simply saying that read this and don't do this. I'm saying read this and recognize you and I do this. We do this, you and I. This is a problem for us. We live in a culture that nurtures greed. It nurtures the love of money. Because status in our culture is measured by how much you have. And the scriptures warn us over and over again to beware of even a, a little bit of greed or a little love of money. To Paul writing to the Corinthians and the Galatians said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It only takes a, a few grains of yeast to cause a whole loaf to blow up. Solomon warned, he said that the little foxes are the ones that ruin the vineyard as they nibble away at the ripe grape grapes and destroy the blossoms. And Paul, writing in Ephesians 6, said, some people eager for money have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many griefs. Pierced themselves. It's interesting that how dangerous grasping can be. I was watching the news the other day and 
It's really very tragic. A, a man and his sister were visiting Yellowstone Park, and they got off the trail because they were looking for a hot pool that they could soak in. And they call it hot potting. And they came upon this one pool, and the gentleman wanted to touch it to see how hot it was to make sure that it would be safe for them to get in. And as he kneeled down and put his hand in the pool, the side of the hill collapsed, and he fell into the pool. And the pool was 210 degrees, uh, and he died almost instantaneously because it was also very full of acid. They couldn't get him out of the pool that day. They came back the next day to retrieve his body, and they couldn't find it because it had dissolved and been basically eaten away by the acid, and there was nothing to recover. I don't know how that relates. I just wanted to tell that story. <laughs> no, seriously, I, in my mind, I'm picturing this guy who is breaking the rules because some, sometimes people in this culture think rules are made to be broken or they don't really mean anything or they apply to other people. But he's breaking the rules to do something that he's told is not safe, but he's going to do it anyway. And as he gets into the very grasping for the thing he wants, it becomes a thing that destroys him. And in a broader way, we find that kind of thing happening all the time. People get caught up into things, you know, and it's amazing. My own dear mother, she was, you know, we didn't realize the time she had the onset of, of a dementia. She was far more uh, incapable of making good judgments than we had any realization. But she just gets a phone call one day from this friendly guy who makes, tells her that she can make all this money. She just has to invest a little bit. And so she says, okay, and she sends him some money, a few thousand dollars. By the time I found out about it, a month later, she had managed to send him $73,000. And if we hadn't have caught it, he probably would have wiped her out. Because, and, 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 and when we had detectives talk to her, she argued with them because she knew it had to be true because he said he worked for the government. Now, that kind of fraud with seniors is pretty common. But when I asked her, why did you do it? He said, because if I sent him that money, I would win $3 million and a brand new BMW. It was greed. You know? I mean, we hate to say that kind of stuff, but that's really what it is. It's greed. People have done that on bigger and smaller levels all their life, and it sucks you in, and it only destroys you in the end. Bernie Madoff, as I mentioned before, was motivated by greed. Where is Bernie these days? I haven't seen him at the club lately. Well, he fell into the pool and is slowly being eaten away by his incarceration. You know, that's, that's the whole thing that Scripture says. This is what, what happens to us. And we need to realize that just a little is not okay. If we catch ourselves being motivated by the idolatrous greediness of stuff and things and money, we need to repent and ask God to forgive us. That's part of the discipling program. That we really need to ask God, search my heart and show me where I'm at. That fourthly... 
there's a view that wealth is sin and poverty is a virtue. Well, many times in an effort to avoid the potential entanglements of money, many have concluded that poverty is the only way that we can be godly. But there's a couple problems with that conclusion. Number one, uh, poverty is addressed 173 times in the Bible. And I only know of one passage which speaks of it in any way as a positive. When James says in James 2, 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of, he promised to those who love him? In other words, James makes a very obvious observation. Poor people, because of their poverty and because of their limited resources, tend to pray more because that's the only option they have. And some have taken that and said, therefore, what we want to do is put ourselves in that situation. But the fact is, beside that one passage, we never find ourselves enjoined to seek after a life of poverty, but instead to do whatever we can to alleviate the poverty that we see other people trapped in. In fact, Solomon prayed that God would keep him, keep him in a lifestyle where he would be somewhere in the middle. He says in Proverbs 30, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I have, may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see, poverty is a condition sometimes brought on by injustice and sometimes brought on as the consequences of our own foolishness and bad choices. But we should never think of it as automatically being virtuous. It can be used by God to create virtue in your life, as James said, but it can also lead you away from virtue because that's what choices do to us. There are as many evil and greedy poor people in the world as there are greedy and evil rich people in the world. It's not a determiner. Being poor doesn't make you holy. Being rich doesn't make you holy or evil. Poverty, like the climate, is a condition that we find ourselves in. It's not a calling, per se. You know, there are advantages to having lots of money. It's far more convenient it's far more convenient than not having money. But where you miss out is when you have more than you need, you tend not to pray very much about those needs. But secondly, the Bible's filled with stories of wealthy saints. I mean, from Abraham to Joseph of Arimathea. That even in the early church, there were actually rich people in the church. And I say that because Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in the wealth. So Paul had to deal with the issue of people who had wealth and didn't know how to manage that biblically. But thirdly, although some people become wealthy through dishonesty, David and Solomon inform us that there are those who become wealthy because of God's blessing upon their life. 1 Chronicles 29, 12, David says, wealth and honor come from you. Ecclesiastes 5, 18, he says, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, this is a gift of God. So the point is this, that wealth is never in itself the problem, but it's how we get it and what we do with it once we've got it. It's the management of it. When I read in, in Romans 12 that Paul says somebody has a gift of giving, it tells me that this is a person who has something to give. 
That God will enrich certain people, if not all of us, to some degree, so that we can have the opportunity to experience the greater blessing in life in being able to give to others. And that's why he said in Luke 16, 9, use your worldly resources to benefit others and to make friends. In this way, your generosity stores up a reward for you in heaven. Which brings me to the last misconception, and it's this. That money has a way to make you happy or more happy. Um, the Bible says just the opposite. First of all, it says this about money. You'll never have enough of it. Do you get that? No matter how much money you have, it's never enough. It says, whoever loves money never has money enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. I remember when somebody in interviewer asked John Paul Getty one time, who at the time was one of the wealthiest men in the world, uh, how much more money he needed to make, and he said, one dollar more. This was a guy who was at the time a billionaire when there weren't so many of them, and he installed a payphone in his mansion because he got tired of people making long-distance calls on his phones. You know, he's one of those guys that could squeeze a penny and make it squeal. So this is, this is interesting because you never have enough. I just need a little more. In fact, most people are asked, how much more money do you need to make annually to be happy? And the average came out 10% more than you're making right now. It didn't matter what your income was, you just needed 10% more. If I just had 10% more than what I have right now, I would be happy. That's really, you know what that looks like? It looks like a stick with a carrot on it hanging out in front of a donkey, and you're not the carrot, you're not the stick, you're the donkey. <laughs> you're pursuing a goal that you can never reach. I'm simply saying if you do something to get money and that's what's, what's driving you, you're going to be very unhappy with your life. But secondly, wealth has the ability to create problems, not to relieve them. <laughs> Solomon went on to say, the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Why? He says, because riches disappear in the blink of an eye, wealth sprouts wings and flies off. And so he warns, do not wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. You see, money brings with it also a responsibility. I mean, it doesn't simply relieve that pressure. It increases the pressure because, uh, as he says in Acts 5, Ecclesiastes 5.11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. That's the first prophecy of the Internal Revenue Service in the Bible. <laughs> and what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them. In this increasingly digital age, you know, I can go on my computer and I can see how much money I have in the bank. Isn't that interesting? I can feast my eyes on a spreadsheet on the computer. Actually, my wife can because I don't know how to get into a program. But anyway... <laughs> But beyond that, what are you going to do? Are you going to stack it up in piles around the house and enjoy it and wait for the government to devalue the currency? Or what do you do? But really, the more you have, the more complicated your life becomes. Some of you have businesses and you realize how complicated they have become. You voted for Donald Trump in the hope that somehow he'll uncomplicate those complications. And maybe he will. But the simple fact is, taxes, obligations, responsibilities, scams, embezzlements, extortions, <laughs> uh, simple theft, there's all sorts of difficulties. The most terrifying thing for me when my mother passed away 
was that I had the responsibility of being the executor of her state, and I thought, how are the four siblings who were involved in this equation going to behave? Scary moment. Fortunately, they were all good. But it's a possibility. You know, that's why my wife and I determined we're going to spend the last farthing before we die. <laughs> we want to spare our kids from those hardships. <laughs> Not really. I just say that for a cheap laugh. But if you misuse what God has given you, there's consequences that come naturally. Not, not that somebody does it to you, it just flows with it, it's attached to it. He says again in verse 10 of our reading today, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Literally, the Thayer's lexicon says it's consuming griefs, great pain and great sorrow. I had a friend many years ago when I was a young man, a new Christian, who, um, I mean, I didn't think much of it, but he, he got an inheritance. And at the time, it seemed like an unbelievable amount of money, about $120,000. And he bought himself a new vehicle and, and bought himself every toy that you could imagine at the time. And then uh, he gave the rest away to the ministry, and that was the end of the story. And I thought, wow, that's pretty generous, until I realized that his wife was the heir to the largest personal fortune in the state of California. And I thought, huh, I wonder how that's going to work out. And guess what? You know, finally, uh, the last ancestor passed away and everything became hers. And it was interesting what happened. She immediately left him and divorced him and started a whole new life. Now, I thought to myself, you know, I went from immediately from that moment of saying, wow, how fortunate you are to thinking how tragic your life has become so quickly. We could spend, I could spend hours going through examples of people who have won the lottery. I did that one time some years ago, and it was pretty tragic because you think these lucky people, they've got this, all this money has come in. I've never played the lottery because I don't want God to bless me that way. If God wants me to get millions and millions of dollars, he, he, I don't have to you know, buy a scratch ticket or whatever you do to get that. But you see, many times when I see people, even Christians, getting all excited about that kind of stuff, it, it tells me something's not connecting perfectly. This is the discipleship issue. Because suddenly we're looking at money and saying, money will fix it. Money will fix it. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times that we don't need money to fix it. I'm just saying... My wife and I have learned that we can get on our knees and say, God, we need money to fix this. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. My wife, I, you know, I had, when I had surgery a few years back, and uh, after the surgery was all done, it was very expensive, there was a small item of the copay. Insurance company covered most of it, and I had a small copay of $5,000. And I remember thinking, okay, I guess I can stretch this out and make payments and we can get this taken care of. And I got asked to speak someplace uh, far away. So I thought, okay, I'll go. And I went and spoke. And when I got done speaking there, I mean, I spoke for 45 minutes so I could understand their, their generosity. They hand me an envelope and I said, thank you. And put it in my, my Bible and 
got in the car and drove to the airport. And uh, next day, as I'm flying home, I open my Bible, and there's this envelope, and I open it up, and there's a check for $5,000. And I called my wife immediately and said, Honey, I, I need to go back and do some more teaching. <laughs> <laughs> No, I knew it wasn't because I had been so profound. But some crazy way God had spoken to those people and said, we want you to bless this guy. And I think that those kind of moments in your life, yeah, it affected our lifestyle. I mean, I didn't have to pay off this thing for the next umpteen years. But at the same time, it was this thing of, God, you are so generous. And I was at a point in my life physically, mentally, spiritually, I really needed to know that God cared, that God really did still like me because I had a lot of people telling me he didn't. <laughs> and it's at those moments where you just need to hear from God. And it's a funny thing. So God is a great God who hears your issues. And it's not that God wants to keep you in a state of impoverishment, but he wants you to trust him for those things. You hate your job? Don't go and quit and then start putting out resumes. Just pray that God will either fix this job or give you a new one where you're supposed to be. Because where you're at right now, baby, the crucible in which he is forming and shaping you into something that he wants you to be and you haven't yet come to recognize it. But this idea that we have to take the bull by the horns and ram ourselves through life and make things happen is a pure path to not only exhaustion, but probably creates such a tone deafness in our spiritual life that we don't hear what God's trying to say to us in the midst of it. So that when sometimes God says, just wait on me, stand still and behold the salvation of your God. Just watch what God is going to do. Because God says, thou shalt have no gods before me. Because I'm a jealous God. And I would ask you, does God have reason to be jealous about your view of money? Does he have reason to be jealous? Again, Paul said in the beginning of this reading, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have found clothing, have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul later continued to the Philippians, saying in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content. I take comfort in that word learned. Tells me he didn't start that way. He had, to get, he had to get schooled on it. But I learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether fed, well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul found himself in all sorts of physical circumstances, monetary circumstances. And he said, what I discovered more than anything else is to be content in what God has me in at the moment. That I'm available, Lord, to whatever you want. That if God's will is to exalt you in material ways, then praise and thank him for what he has done in your life. If it is God's will to break you and humble you and take you through difficult times where you just have to trust in him. Embrace that moment because he's molding and shaping you after the purpose of his will. But above all else, don't fall into the idolatry that says money will make you happy. Money will bring you peace. That money is the solution. 
Because it's not. It's not. Father God, I pray that you would help us to hear and apply these things to our life in a way that makes a difference in how we live our lives. We get awkward when we talk about money issues because really it's a bigger issue for all of us than we want to admit. Every one of us is guilty of envying the person who has more. Every one of us is guilty of judging the person who has less. And yet, God, our life is more than our possessions. You said that so clearly in so many ways. And I pray, God, that we would be able to see money for what it is. It's a a useful tool. It's a convenience. But it is not the answer. Nor is it the provider and the protector. That's who you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a right attitude and perspective in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue on, I just encourage you to spend some time really reflecting in your own heart on some of the things that are said. I admit, these kind of sermons are easy to hit bullseyes with people. I mean, the guilt factor in a message like this is huge. But that's not the purpose of it, because guilt only has one value, and that's to bring us to a place of surrender and brokenness before God where we confess our sins. And if, if you find that, you know, this is an issue for you, an area where you've kind of resisted God's discipleship in your life, then I just encourage you to begin seeking His face in regards to it. Even now saying, God, give me your heart about money. Help me to see it with your eyes. And then enjoy the journey whichever way that goes. But God wants to be Lord of every area of your life, not just some of them. And He will resist any idolatry in your life or my life, no matter where it shows up. Can I be honest? I always like it when I have money. And I always struggle when I don't have money. But when have I seen God the most powerful? When I don't have it. When I don't have the resources to respond, that's when God becomes powerful. Sometimes I look at this church and I describe it as that burning bush in the wilderness. I don't know how this place stays open. I don't get it. Every time we think we get ahead, we find another roof is leaking. I don't know. It's kind of this endless thing. and You just settle into this thing, God, this keeps us in a place of having to ask you to trust you, to depend upon you because you're the provider. So you don't hear us beating you guys about, well, we got this, we got that. Because we don't think that you're the answer. We believe that God is. And we're going to pray about things that come up and ask God to provide and bless. Because that's where it comes from, ultimately. And you live in that place, it's a place of tremendous freedom. And I just invite you to take a chance to experience that for yourself. If you want prayer, there'll be some of us up here. Invite you to come and take from the elements of communion as we continue our worship together.